Good afternoon. Tom, Tom Petty once said, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart, but the waiting is the hardest part. You've probably heard that song before. So I want to start off with the question, what is it about waiting that's so difficult? And you have to admit, sometimes in our culture, we're expected to wait for things in really odd ways. So what are some examples of some really odd ways that we wait on things? You know, they say that a dog is man's best friend, but if you ever use a crock pot or a slow cooker to cook your dinner, your dog probably thinks that you're a jerk, right? If you think about it, that poor creature is just sitting there all day long, smelling that meat cooking. They say, scientists say that dogs have noses that are 40 times stronger than ours. Think about what you're doing to that poor creature. So the next morning you reach into the cabinet and pull out your slow cooker, I want you to know you're basically a dog torturer. Right? Making it wait like that for something it's not going to even get to taste. Or how about rock concerts? Have you ever thought about that? You're eager with anticipation all week long. You drive to the venue for like an 8 p.m. show. You get there on time. And then what do you have to do? You have to pay, you have to wait for like an hour and a half for the warm-up band to play while you actually wait to see the band that you paid good money for, right? I waited half my life to see you two play live, but that didn't seem even half as long as sitting through their opening act. It's brutal. But the strangest wait that we willingly endure would have to be the one leading up to Christmas. Right? And all the little kids are like, Amen. Because <laughs> just this last week, the day after Thanksgiving, what do we do? We start shopping. We start ordering presents. Then we decorate the outside of our homes with lights. We send cards with family pictures to all of our friends in the mail. We make special cookies. We put a half-dead tree inside our house. We do all these things just so that nobody forgets that Christmas is still a month away, right? And the especially cruel among us will wrap those presents and put them out in the middle of the home and then tell your spouse and your kids you better not touch those until Christmas for the next four weeks. Well, each Sunday between now and Christmas, we're going to briefly explore an aspect of Christmas that has traditionally been thought of as like a core theme of the season. And most Christian denominations and traditions celebrate the same couple of things this first week of Advent. And uh, the first week of Advent is traditionally meant to explore hope and prophecy. The first candle in the Advent uh, calendar is uh, the candle of hope and prophecy. And of course, both of those things, hope and prophecy, involve what? They involve waiting. Uh, so let's explore these two ingredients. Let's explore the, what waiting has uh, in Christmas. And then let's specifically end with a couple of thoughts on how hope and prophecy, and especially waiting, has the power to refresh and empower you spiritually this December. 
Hope you guys got a bulletin when you walked in. Our outline today is going to be uh, just two points, and our sermon's going to be a little briefer than normal. In section one, I just want to give a context of how the Old Testament book of Isaiah actually frames most of the prophecy that then comes true in the Gospels, uh, in the, uh, the, the stories of the birth of Christ. And then in section two, I want to talk about how this waiting can be uplifting for us in the weeks ahead. And then we'll conclude with some great Christmas songs. All right, section one, Isaiah is this book in the Old Testament. And it has almost as much about the birth of Christ and what Jesus would do than uh, some of the Gospels, even though it's in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah occurred and was recorded around 700 B.C., and there's at least 27 predictions or prophecies that have already come true. Things like uh, what would happen uh, to the government of Israel, what would happen with the borders of that country, who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish. These are all things that are predicted or prophesied in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And the reason why this is so significant is even non-religious archaeologists have dated complete copies of the book of Isaiah all the way back to 125 B.C. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but uh, back in like the 40s, uh, in the outskirts of Israel, uh, this shepherd boy found these clay pots inside uh, this cave, and it was actually an ancient library full of scrolls that were still intact. And um, Jewish archaeologists, keep in mind, these are experts on antiquity in the ancient world. And keep in mind, they also don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, being religious Jewish people. But nevertheless, this independent source found these fully intact scrolls of the book of Isaiah, and they said based on all their science and all their expertise, that fully intact scroll dated back at least 125 years before the time of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? It's something that even independent scholars say was written over 100 years before the time of Christ, contained over 27 things about Jesus that would then come true. And that's kind of giving us a picture of how prophecy plays a part in the Christmas story. Now, there's a lot of other things in the book of Isaiah as well. But even the overall theme and even the overall purpose of the book of Isaiah is really all about our need for a Savior and how that would be fulfilled. Let's go through that really quick. So uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's this guy, Isaiah, who's kind of empowered by God to draw attention to how poorly Israel's leadership was representing God. We talk almost every week about how there were these promises made in the Old Testament, a lot of them to this guy Abraham, about how his descendants would have this special role. The Jewish people would have this special role of representing to the rest of the world what God was like. And so the book of Isaiah is essentially God speaking through this guy Isaiah about how poorly Abraham's descendants represented God in the thousand years or so after those promises. So in places like Isaiah 1, 10 to 15, Isaiah points a finger at the hypocrisy of the government of that time. And places like Isaiah 5.8, he points a finger at how greedy the leaders are. In places like Isaiah 5.11, he says, you've been so self-indulgent. You've been so self-centered. 
In places like Isaiah 5.19, he announces that the leader's terrible cynicism has upset God. And of course, there's many places that document how God is upset with the way that the government has oppressed the poor. This is significant because God wanted his people then, and God wants his people now to live with integrity and generosity and hope and mercy. And because the leaders of Israel hadn't done that for a thousand years, uh, in Isaiah 6, 11 to 13, Isaiah announces their punishment. They're going to be exiled. Invaders are going to come in and devastate everything in Israel. The people are going to have to leave as a punishment for the way that they didn't represent God as they were called to represent him. And as we kind of wrap up our overview of the prophecy of Isaiah, God's discipline is never purely punitive. God's discipline is never purely to trample you down and show you how much you goofed up, right? God's discipline, even at its worst, is restorative. It's meant to bring us back into the relationship with him that we were always meant to have. And so as the book of Isaiah goes on, it's, it's, it's filled with this announcement of the punishment that would come, but it also has the beautiful solution to the problem. If the problem is that God's people weren't representing him, the solution is that God was going to send somebody who was going to make it possible for us to represent God in the ways that he wants us to. So in Isaiah 42, 1-4, there's this beautiful prophecy that sometime after that, in the future, there would be a king who would bring justice to all the nations. In Isaiah 49, 1-7, it says that there's going to be this guide, this source of wisdom that's going to bring light to all the Gentiles. Gentiles just meaning people that weren't Jewish of birth or ethnicity, Right? Then in a a beautiful section that I I hope you guys all have kind of the corners folded in your Bibles, in Isaiah 52.13 to Isaiah 53.12, there's this prophecy, this promise, this prediction that part of God's solution to his people not being able to properly represent him is that he was going to send a Savior to suffer in our place and take away the sins of God's people. And so these are the main prophecies that then God's people would look forward to becoming fulfilled. And the significance of the Christmas story is that these promises came true in Jesus. So one of the main reasons why we extend the celebration of Christmas as long as we do for a whole month is to give ourselves just a glimpse of how long God's people had to wait for God's promised plan of a Savior to come true. It was over 750 years from the giving of these promises until the coming of Christ. And so that's kind of the, the overview of uh, Isaiah's connection to the Christmas story and how prophecy kind of set up all the things that came true in the Christmas story. And uh, I usually like our final, section, our final section of each sermon to be so what. Like we don't just come here to learn information according to the Bible. We come here to learn how that information should impact the way that we think and treat others. So let's wrap up with two quick thoughts. What is the significance for us of waiting throughout Advent? Why do we fill up December with all these ways to look forward to what occurs 
on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day. And I'd like to just conclude with two benefits that we can start to grasp of waiting throughout Advent can do to refresh and renew and recharge us spiritually in ways that we probably all need in this crummy year. First one is this. The waiting throughout December, the waiting throughout Christmas, Advent waiting, it heightens our awareness of what we already have in Christ. There's a lot of things that are already true for a Christian based on what Jesus has already done. And waiting and reflecting throughout December gives us a chance to remember and grow in our awareness of what we already have in Jesus. Have you guys ever seen that movie, The Christmas Story, where Ralphie wants the BB gun? Has anybody not seen it? I hope. Because the rest of this isn't going to make sense. Well, there's this almost final scene in The Christmas Story movie. It's on Christmas Eve. And of course, what most people would think of that movie being about is the anticipation of this one incredible gift that this small boy wanted throughout a whole Christmas season. And he eventually gets it, but we'll get to that in a second. There's this one scene at the end of the movie where it's Christmas Eve and the snow flurries are coming down on this Midwestern house in the wintertime. There's wrapping paper everywhere. There's charming music playing. The little brother is in his bed clutching a favorite toy. And if the movie ended right there, it would still be an all-time classic. It would still be shown all the time. Because even up to that point, the movie is a celebration of nostalgia. It's a day-by-day -day remembering of all the good things that this boy remembers about one of the favorite months in his childhood. In other words, even before he gets that thing that he longs for, it's still a movie celebrating all the good things that he remembers. And in the same way, in the next couple of weeks, I mean, we could just start celebrating Christmas one or two days before Christmas, but traditionally, Christians have created Advent to look forward to Christmas for a whole month. And we have the opportunity for the next four weeks to be thankful for the things that we already have in Christ. As you guys sit in front of a fireplace, as you type out your holiday letter, as you reflect back on this past year, I want you to think about the things, the blessings that you already have true through Jesus. I'll just share two of them, and they're two things from the three parts in Isaiah that have already come true. The first one is this. It promises us back in Isaiah that we're going to have a Savior that takes our place in judgment. One thing that I hope that I faithfully communicate every week is that I'm not a pastor because I'm a good person and I'm not better than anybody else here. The reason why I'm inspired to get up here and preach every week is to share the message that Jesus Christ came to take the place of sinners like me in judgment and restore our standing in front of our Creator. It says in Romans 5, 9 to 11, Since we've now been justified by Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? 
Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Romans can be kind of wordy, and that's kind of a theological way of saying that the promise from Isaiah that a Savior would come to take our place in judgment, sinners like me, sinners like probably you, it's already come true. And that's something that we already have to be thankful for in Christ. It talks about that in 1 John 2, 2, Galatians 3, 13, uh, and all sorts of other places throughout the New Testament. Another thing that we have to be thankful for in Christ, as remember it says back in Isaiah, that part of the solution to that problem was going to be a guide to the Gentiles. In other words, God was going to create some sort of compass or direction for us that was going to supersede or greatly improve upon the one that we previously had. It talks, Jesus talks about this all the time throughout his ministry, that he was going to bring the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was going to give us a new internal voice or a new internal direction that was going to steer us through the difficulties that we faced in this world. Uh, in Romans 15, 13, it says this, what a beautiful idea. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, one of the things that we have to be thankful for in Christ is that he's given us the presence of God inside of us. And it says it has the, it has the potential to make us overflow with hope. Uh, I'm living proof that God can give us the power to overflow with hope because I've been a lifelong Chicago Bears fan, all right? <laughs> In other words, my chosen hobby disappoints me year after year, every year of my life. And that's kind of a joke, but every year that, we, every year that we're around, loved ones get sick, people disappoint us, Things don't go the ideal way that we would have chosen. We become more, we have the potential to become more jaded and more bitter. And basically to protect ourselves, just stop hoping as much as we have in the past. And yet Romans 15, 13 is just one place that says that God gives us something internally that allows us to live with joy, that allows us to live with hope. And uh, I can just say that in my own life, I'm thankful for that because that's evidence that God is inside of me because that's not my natural inclination. That's not what increases in me year after year of living in this world. That's something that God, through Jesus Christ, gives me the power to do. So those are just two things, just two examples of things that we can think about throughout Advent to become more aware and more grateful for what we already have in Christ. Let's wrap up with the second thing that waiting can do to recharge and renew us, and it's this. It can heighten our awareness of what we still hope for in Christ. Like, what's the Christmas story, uh, the movie? Like, what, what would be the one-sentence way that you would uh, describe it to somebody? There's this kid who really, really wants a BB gun, and everybody tells him that it's a really terrible gift, and he'll shoot his eye out, and he shouldn't get it. And this movie is just a scene-for-scene, day-by-day remembrance of his growing anticipation of how his joy will be fulfilled if he gets this thing that he longs for. And even though the movie would still be a great movie if he doesn't get that thing, 
he does get that thing. And uh, it just is an exclamation point on everything that he had looked forward to and hoped for that Christmas season. I think one of the reasons why that movie resonates with people and makes people uh, just so happy to watch it year after year is it's such a beautiful picture of getting what we hope for. And in the same way, there's a lot of things that we as God's people, we're still hoping for. And we haven't received them in full. Do you guys remember back, uh, back in that passage in Isaiah, it talked about how one of the things that we would get through Christ would be a king to bring justice to the nations. What, what happened this summer? What happened in May after George Floyd died in police custody? The cities in our country rioted. They marched through the streets for weeks and months and they burned down businesses and they turned over cars and they threw rocks at police officers because they wanted the world to know they had not yet experienced justice as they desired. And maybe you don't like that example, but we could surely think of others. The world has not fully experienced this equality and justice that's promised in Isaiah. And so I want to challenge you guys that in the weeks ahead, we can let this waiting heighten our awareness of the things that we still hope for through Christ. Because not all the promises have been fully fulfilled. And we can still look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of those promises in a way that fills us with increasing hope. Here's another promise that hasn't come fully true. In Revelations 24, it tells us that one day Jesus Christ will be so victorious that there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. On Friday night, my mom and dad celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, uh, but it was a little bit bittersweet because my dad's in a nursing home and he has dementia and he can't use half of his body and my mom had to cry to convince the nursing home workers to let her be in the building because of COVID restrictions and she brought in some lasagna and they ate it together over a plastic tablecloth and like I said, it's bittersweet. It's beautiful because they're still together through the ups and the downs of 50 years of marriage. But it's heart-wrenching because my dad's body is deteriorating and he wasn't even fully aware of what was happening at that dinner. But Revelations 24, 21.4 says that through Christ one day there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more crying and there will be no more pain. And we can spend the next couple of weeks looking forward to the full fulfillment of that promise. Isn't that something to look forward to for those of us that have lo uh, had losses and pain and sorrow in the past year? Well, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close us with a song or two. And as they do, let's conclude the service with worship. And let's start to grasp that the next four weeks are not just for thinking about what we're going to get for presents, right? The next four weeks are not just about planning the perfect menu or trying to be an excellent host. The next couple of weeks are meant to give us time to reflect on what we already have in Christ and the promises of Christ that we still desire to come true. I hope those two things encourage you guys in the weeks ahead like I know they're going to empower and encourage me.